Turn with me again this morning to the book of Acts as we continue our series uh, in the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Risen Christ. Uh, chapter 2, and we'll be looking at uh, Peter's whole sermon here this morning, verses 14 through 41, a, a longer passage maybe than we normally uh, read. I'm going to pick up, uh, begin reading at verse 12, just at verse 12, just to uh, give us a little bit of the context uh, from the beginning of the day of Pentecost. This is just a continuation of that, um, the Holy Spirit being poured out and the gospel being spoken in, in all these languages. So beginning in verse 12, hear God's word. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make full, uh, me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither, neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And we'll end our reading there for this morning. Again, this morning we'll look at Peter's uh, first sermon, is what this is. Uh, I can remember a little bit about my first sermon. I preached it for homiletics class in seminary. I uh, preached it in a, our daily chapel service uh, as, as well, even though it was for, uh, for class. Uh, it was on an assigned um, verse from Hebrews 11 on the faith of Abraham. Um, and uh, the, the chapel at our seminary in Pittsburgh is, is not a very big room. Um, the first row of chairs, in fact, is probably almost half the distance as this first row, and the, and the aisle is very narrow. I was preaching in front of all my fellow students, all of my professors, um, and I don't remember anything much besides this, that the person on the front row, on the inside of the front row, you know, sitting about right here, uh, promptly fell asleep. <laughs> And I could suppose that he was really tired or something like that, but I suppose it also could have had something to do with uh, my sermon. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had a college for preachers uh, and in London, and one thing that he put his poor students through was spontaneous preaching. So in the chapel, he'd have his students in front of him, and he would call one of them out and assign them a text, and they'd have to walk up front. And preach on it. And, and a story has been passed down of one student who was given the text about Zacchaeus in the Gospels. And so he climbed up in the pulpit, read the passage, and then he said, Zacchaeus was of little stature, so am I. He said, Zacchaeus was up a tree, so am I. <laughs> he said, Zacchaeus climbed down, so will I. And, and he sat down. <laughs> well, we have here Peter's first. Uh, spontaneous, uh, remarkable sermon. Uh, remarkable for seven, several reasons. Uh, remarkable because the last public declaration about Jesus that Peter made uh, was a shameful disaster, right? Uh, and now, uh, here he's giving this in the face of mockers and skeptics and in the city that has just recently murdered his Lord, uh, and again, it's without preparation. Peter didn't know when the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out just moments before. And here he finds himself uh, needing to proclaim Jesus. And yet it's a powerful and clear proclamation of Jesus. Um, it's a, certainly, like the other uh, sermons and acts, a, a summary of what Peter said or a portion of what he said. Um, verse 40 here in our text says as well, by many other words, uh, he spoke to them as well. But it's a powerful sermon, incredibly blessed by the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people turn to Christ and are baptized in response. Uh, and so as we look at this, this sermon, I, I want to put a topical, practical spin on it, our, our examination of it from the beginning. As we hear Peter's message, I want us to also consider what it teaches us as a model for biblical preaching. Uh, what is biblical preaching? What, what does it look like? What ought it to look like? So we'll look at four things this morning uh, that biblical preaching is. Uh, so first, on your outline there, biblical preaching is spirit-led. 
It's spirit-led. We'll, we'll touch on this uh, most briefly, I think. But, but Luke is clearly portraying, as he relates uh, Peter's sermon here, uh, what happens in the context still of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is very much a part of that event still. It's the same day, uh, the, the, same, the same time here. Still on the day of Pentecost, this passage follows immediately on what we looked at last week, the pouring out of the Spirit. Um, verse 4, we, we spent some time on last week. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. Um, uh, last week when we studied what in the book of Acts it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw that it's, it's for speaking boldly, speaking clearly about Jesus uh, over and over again in the book of Acts. And here the Holy Spirit was poured out. People began to speak about Jesus in various languages. Uh, a crowd gathered and they were amazed as we read. And, and then some opposition rises up as well. Verse 13, some people begin mocking, uh, supposing they're drunk. And so at some point, Peter alone takes the stage, as it were, gets people's attention, uh, and preaches this sermon. Preaches in defense of what's going on. We're not drunk. Uh, preaches in explanation of it and, and proclaims Christ. Um, verse 14, where it says that Peter declared to them, that's actually the same word as in verse 4 that we looked at last week, the, the utterance that the Holy Spirit was giving them, that sort of Unfortunate Bibleese, I suggested. Utterance isn't a word that we really use in English, and he doesn't give the, the connotations that this word means, which is to speak boldly and clearly, to clearly proclaim something. And this is what uh, Peter stands up to do. Um, again, Peter has not done this before that we know of. Uh, he didn't know this opportunity was coming right at this moment, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he proclaims Christ. And, and uh, this, this first... Uh, point in our in our sermon this morning that that biblical preaching is spirit led um, is more subjective than the other three in terms of observing it but uh, no less important all true biblical preaching must be spirit led spirit guided uh, one of the jobs of the holy spirit maybe the primary job of the holy spirit is to point to christ is to point us to christ uh, and his work and his word and so any preaching that is merely entertainment or just serves to build up a preacher's own brand or pride or doesn't center on the Lord Jesus uh, is not true biblical preaching. Uh, it's, it's also said of Charles Spurgeon again, uh, that when Charles Spurgeon climbed into his pulpit, and it was quite a climb there at the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in, in London in his day. It was a large church um, with a big high pulpit. But it's said that uh, as he climbed into the pulpit, every step he took, he, he repeated that phrase from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, Spurgeon was a famous and powerful preacher and, and had the rhetorical skill to move people and, and hold their attention uh, just, just by his own force of personality and skill. And he had a platform and opportunity to, to build his own reputation and bring glory to himself. And so uh, evidently, he, he always wanted to be mindful that any, any true spiritual gospel benefit would be by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and the goal of all preaching was to glorify God and not, uh, not self. Um, if preaching is go of the gospel is spirit-led, then I will, it will ultimately also be these other three things on our outline. So secondly, uh, it will also be scripture-filled. Scripture-filled or scripture-based. 
Uh, what we don't get in Peter's sermon here is, is just Peter's own musings and thoughts. Uh, he preached the word of God. There's a sense also in which, you know, as, as Peter and the apostles preached, they're preaching what would become the word of God, become the New Testament. They're, they're proclaiming the message that would be written in the New Testament. But Peter's sermon is also here full of scripture as he knew it. It's full of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, he quotes at length three passages from Joel 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And so I, I want to look at each of these briefly with you, each of his, um, uh, the passages that he preaches from, as it were, here. So first, verses 16 to 21, he, he proclaims what the prophet Joel said. And this is, in part, an answer to the accusation, all, all these people are just drunk, you know, in, in the pouring out of the Spirit. And Peter says, no. This is what God promised in his word. This is a, a great event that was anticipated in God's word. Verse 17 um, says, uh, Joel says, this shall be in the last days. Uh, we are in the last days. Sometimes Christians think or talk about last days as the very last few days right before Jesus comes. The New Testament repeatedly says, these are the last days. Hebrews 1 begins with, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Um, Joel looks ahead in this, this portion that, that Peter quotes to this whole period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, uh, the last days. Um, leading up to verse 20, the great and glorious day of the Lord. Uh, that day of the Lord is, is that last great day. It's, it's, that's a, a common theme in the prophets, looking forward to that last day of, of judgment and reckoning and fulfillment and Blessing, full blessing for God's people, that last great day when Jesus returns. Um, in verses 19 and 20, there, there are these references to wonders in the sky and the sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood, and so on. This is, we find this language in Revelation uh, and elsewhere. It's, it's not literal. It's apocalyptic language. It's, it's figurative for, for God's mighty acting, uh, God's, God's coming to judge. And that's part of... Part of Joel's great vision here of the Spirit being poured out by the Messiah uh, all the way until uh, the, final, the final judgment, the day of the Lord. Well, Peter concludes with, with Joel's then implied invitation, verse 21. It shall be that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we might summarize Peter's quotation of Joel here in this way. He's saying the, the eschatological clock is ticking, if you will, the, the you know, time is, the last days are marching forward, and so you need to turn to the Lord. He's saying this, this is not a scene to mock. Um, this, is, this is a sign that God is powerfully at work. He's, he's coming again, and you need to turn to him uh, and receive these great gifts. Peter goes on then to speak about Jesus' ministry and his death. And then the second passage that he uses, the second scripture, uh, is in verses 25 to 28, where he quotes Psalm 16. Uh, and he gives his point right up front in verse 24. God raised him up again, raised Jesus from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he quotes Psalm 16, which is written by David. And, and in that psalm and what he quotes here, David expresses his confidence that God would ultimately preserve his life, uh, not leave him to Hades, the, the realm of the dead, uh, where people are gathered for judgment. He wouldn't let his body decay, but he would give him joy in God's presence forever, uh, is how the, the end of the psalm here goes. And, and 
Uh, it doesn't say forever, but in God's presence. And I, th- I think we can imply what, what David says elsewhere, like Psalm 23. Uh, that, you know, some of the kids are memorizing. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That, that was David's hope. Um, and Peter gives his point then in verse 29. He says, you know, David, David died and he's buried. And his tomb is still here with us. I mean, it's been hundreds and hundreds of years. David is so dead, he's done rotting, is Peter's point. And so um, Peter's point is that either David was wrong in his hope that he wouldn't die and be buried and rot, or, he goes on in verse 30, he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Uh, and that's Peter's conclusion. You know, the whole New Testament attributes a lot of awareness to David that he was, uh, uh, his role of a prophet, his role as a, a type or a, a sort of role player, uh, anticipating the Messiah. Uh, in many Psalms, David speaks about the Messiah. He speaks for the Messiah. Uh, he, he expresses the life and experience and hope of Jesus. And anticipates Jesus in that way. And he says in verse 30, God uh, promised David a descendant who would, who would be the Christ, the King, the Savior. Uh, Psalm 132 tells us about that promise God made to David. Or most importantly, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7 is a really crucial text in understanding God's promises uh, throughout the Bible. Here's, here's what God said to David there. Uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for you, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, we might think, well, maybe he's just talking about Solomon. Solomon came after him, and he had a kingdom. But God goes on, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. A uh, forever rule and throne. I will be to him a father, God says. He will be my son. Uh, There's something much beyond Solomon or Hezekiah or any other king there. Same with, uh, there are many examples. Psalm 72 speaks of uh, the the kingdom of David, the throne of David, extending forever, extending over the whole earth, bringing in worship from the entire earth. Solomon never experienced that. Hezekiah, none, none of the other kings experienced that. So David clearly had this knowledge this expectation. And so he looked ahead, Peter said, and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Uh, And then Peter says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So he says, not only was this this pouring out of the spirit that Jesus gave, uh, told and, and, and longed for in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, God raised Jesus from the dead. This was promised to us as well. So who is Jesus? He was, he was attested by miracles. He was raised from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. He's sent the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is the Messiah. He's the Christ. Uh, and then the last point that Peter turns to is uh, that Jesus has ascended to the throne. He's ruling. He's saving. And, and this, too, was promised in the Word. Uh, and so his last passage uh, comes uh, in verses 34 and 35. There's an interesting pattern repeated in the Old Testament, even aside from God promising David that that one of his descendants would rule forever. Uh, Often in the Old Testament, there's this overlap between David's throne and David's kingdom and God's throne and God's kingdom. Sometimes they almost seem to be confused. 
They're interchangeable. They're overlapping. So here, here's one example in 1 Chronicles 29. It says, then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord. Well, it was the throne of David, but it was said to be the throne of the Lord. So Peter gives another example of this in verses 34 and 35 here. This is Psalm 110. It's his third use of scripture. Uh, and, and it's where David speaks of the Lord, Yahweh, who speaks to my Lord. David, someone else that David calls Lord. Um, someone who would take the throne at the right hand of God and, and be victorious over all of God's enemies uh, is what Psalm 110 here says. Of course, Jesus quotes that, those verses as well uh, to point to his own divinity. And Peter again is saying, this is Jesus. He's not saying that Jesus one day will take this, this throne and rule in the world. He's saying Jesus is ruling now on that throne. He's there. He's, look, he's sending the Spirit. Uh, he's at the right hand of God, and salvation comes through him alone. And he, he closes his sermon then with, uh, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Uh, he's made him King of Kings and Savior, uh, this Jesus uh, and again, my, my point uh, here in this point of the sermon of, of application is that Peter's sermon is rooted in the scriptures. It's full of the scriptures. It's, it's the Bible that he's preaching. It's kind of, as we think of, of preaching today, it's kind of a difficult thing to, to quantify exactly, but I think it's indisputably part of a, uh, part of a major shift in modern preaching in, in our society uh, that it's light on the word of God if not devoid of the word of God sometimes. Uh, sometimes you get a preacher's musings and advice or, or just uh, jokes and stories. Um, nothing wrong with jokes and stories or, or counsel or those kind of things. But the, often the Bible is used as a sort of reference, right? A few verses are sprinkled in here and there to, to add to or to highlight the message over here. In biblical preaching... The Bible is the message, right? The Bible is what is preached. Uh, we say that, that preaching is not to be expository. Just a fancy word. It's expositing. It's explaining. It's proclaiming the word of God. The word of God is the message. And just a, a, a broader application of that as well. Just think about the fact that Peter himself clearly was, was filled with the word of God. Again, he didn't, he didn't have time to sit down and, and write out this sermon and look up references in his Bible and so on. He was evidently filled with the word of God himself, such that his sermon was the word of God. Um, and an application to every one of us in sharing Christ out, outside of formal preaching of the gospel is to be filled with the word of God so that you can share Jesus um, by the word of God. The scriptures say it's the word of God. It's not your eloquence or power or charisma. It's the word of God that, that is the power to salvation, as Paul says in Romans. So it's uh, biblical preaching is spirit-led um, and scripture-filled. And thirdly, it's savior-centered, savior-centered or Christ-centered. What is the main topic of Peter's sermon? It's Jesus. It begins and ends with Jesus. He begins after quoting Joel here with Jesus the Nazarene. And then he ends in verse 36. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Um, biblical gospel preaching ought always to proclaim Jesus. And Peter's first sermon was full of Jesus. Uh, in, 
Jesus in prophecy and, and God's plan all along. Um, we ought to see Jesus all through the Old Testament on every page of the scriptures. Uh, his ministry, his crucifixion, he goes through his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, it's all about Jesus. And there, there are several qualifications we could give at that point. That's not to suggest that um, today every sermon need to be simply the gospel. Um, there's so much to talk about in connection with the gospel, in application of it, in, in living it out, um, in, in applying what it means to live for Christ who's died for you. doesn't mean every sermon need to explain every, all those pieces of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection and so on. But preaching ought not to be just stories and jokes and thoughts and practical advice. It must proclaim the word and Jesus. Um, what is Paul's summary a couple of times of his preaching when he writes back to some of the churches that he plants? Well, in one place, it's, we sought to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Right, and Paul's speaking a little hyperbolically there. It's not as if Paul didn't discuss any other topic with the people there in the church. Um, but that was the center. That was the point. That was the, f- the fountain of anything that Paul preached. Right? If he was instructing on family life or how to relate to government or prayer or all the, many different topics that he, he wrote about, uh, whatever it was, it was all because of the crucified and risen Savior. Um, so if you hear a sermon, as, as maybe you have, that because it wasn't Christ-centered, was it would you know, be normal and acceptable in a Unitarian church or a Mormon church or a Muslim mosque, uh, it, it's not fully biblical preaching. It's probably moralizing. Uh, biblical preaching is, is Christ-centered. And then fourthly, uh, biblical preaching is soul-searching. It's soul-searching, or it's convicting, and it prompts soul-searching. Look at the, the response as it's described uh, in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. The, the Greek word that's translated pierced there means to, to cut something down to the bottom or, or to pierce it all the way through. And figuratively, of course, it means they were convicted. They, they were alarmed by what had happened to Jesus, their sin towards Jesus. They were alarmed thinking of what their standing before God was. And here's a necessary piece to, to true biblical preaching. In order to convert sinners or even toward those who are already converted and belong to Christ, in order to, to grow them and change them and sanctify them, we, we must be cut down in a sense. We must be pierced through by the word of God. This is not to say that every single sermon ought to leave you weeping and conviction or you know, with some specific way that you, you need to repent immediately. That's not the aim of everything Jesus said. Elder Jeff began this morning with Jesus' statement, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You could experience conviction from that for sure, but, but the aim of that is particularly comfort and, and offer of, of rest. But much of biblical truth, much of Jesus' preaching and, and teaching sermons and acts aims to pierce uh, in order to heal, uh, in order to give hope. It, it's like the need of someone, say you need life-saving surgery to purge some disease out of you or to clear a blockage of your heart or something. No matter what you look like on the outside or what you thought about your health before you got the diagnosis, there's no way to save you unless the surgeon 
pierces you, right? cuts you open, exposes the problem. Or it's like a field, a farmer's field that's dried out and hardened, and it, and it needs to be violently cut up by a plow and softened so that it can receive seed and water and produce fruit. Jesus, of course, uses that very illustration. Um, receive the seed of the word. As sinners, even, even after we're converted and belong to Christ, we need to be pierced by the word to become more like Christ. Until glory, there's, there's always things in us that need to be cut down, pierced. Uh, something old, something resistant to the truth, a, a wall that keeps us in, in darkness to our own sin. And the truth of God's word cuts down that wall or, or pierces through the darkness so that we can see clearly, honestly, our own need. We can see our own helplessness on our own, our own sin. That we can see the light, we can see the glory and the grace of God clearly. You know, the reality is that the gospel offends. The gospel offends. That's not my summary or statement. The New Testament says that Jesus himself is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And it's interesting, other places in Acts, two other places, we hear about someone being cut by the preaching of the word. Only the response then is negative. It's, it's a rejection. So in chapter 5, verse 33, the, some of the Jewish leaders says, When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And the word there is, it's not the same as pierced. It, it's a word that means to saw something in half. Uh, and yet their response was they were enraged. They weren't humbled. They didn't ask, what should we do? Uh, and then in chapter 7, verse 54, again, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Same, same word for sawing. And then the word cardia. They were cut to the heart. And yet again, they, they resulted in their rejecting the message and being offended. Uh, but in some sense, we all must be offended by the message of the cross. Right? It calls us to die to self and give ourselves to the Lord. We, we all must be offended by the lordship of Christ in order to escape our own pride, our own selfishness, our own self-dependence. Here's a practical related question to this. What is the difference between preaching and teaching? You thought about that? If there's a difference, what is, what is the difference? Well, here it is primarily. Teaching, teaching speaks about the Bible as a topic. It's as if a teacher is standing with the class and we're looking at the Bible and we're talking about it. Whereas preaching, the nature of preaching is it's from the Bible. It's speaking with the authority of, of the scriptures, and it calls for a response. It, it authoritatively proclaims Christ as Lord and Savior and says, you need to respond. Be saved. It proclaims that, that you're a guilty sinner before God, that you are not sovereign, that you're not in control, that you're not actually the ultimate determiner of what's right and wrong. It, it aims to pierce, in other words, in order to save and, and this piercing is not pleasant, it's not easy, but it's life-giving. Again, if, if you reject the surgeon's diagnosis or don't want to go through the pain of surgery or something, then you'll die, according to my earlier illustration. If you don't have sin exposed, you won't see your need for Jesus. You won't see how great is the love and the grace of God. You won't be amazed at God's adoption of you. So preaching that never pierces 
in fact, diminishes the grace of God. It shrinks it down to almost nothing. It becomes simply a niceness of God, uh, principles for living, therapeutic. Uh, therapeutic preaching, I think, is, is common today. It reflects an increasingly narcissistic therapeutic society that, that, we, that we live in in many ways. I've quoted before sociologist Philip Reif. Uh, Philip Reif is not a Christian, but he has a famous observation of American Christianity. Uh, he, he observes that present American Christianity is marked by people often going to church to, be, to feel happy, to be made, made to feel good about themselves, he says. And then, this is his famous observation, in the past, he says, it seems people went to church to have their misery explained to them. Uh, to, uh, that is to understand suffering and the gospel as the answer to evil and suffering, not just an escape, right? Like you might go to the theater or go to a basketball game or something. Uh, preaching ought not to aim simply at making people feel good or never making them uncomfortable. And of course, a, a massive qualifier here is that gospel preaching ought to give us the greatest joy and comfort imaginable and possible. And many sermons may have that as their main focus, but it does that as the Bible does, as sermons and acts will do, uh, largely by, by cutting as well. Cutting through the lies that we believe, the the idols that we love, the blindness that we have in order to give us a fuller joy, right? a, a truer life, and not a partial counterfeit to that. L look at the further evidence of their piercing in verse 37. They were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter, brothers, what should we do? What should we do? Interestingly, John the Baptist's preaching uh, produced the same exact result in his hearers. In, in uh, the early parts of the Gospels. What shall we do? Is what they asked him. And what is Peter's answer? Verse 38, essentially it's turn to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And here's an important qualification to what I've been saying about preaching necessarily bringing conviction and, and piercing at times. It's that the preaching does not, preaching does that not primarily by a call to do something. It does that not primarily by a call to do something, to, to a list of application points, but by presenting Jesus, his forgiveness, life in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The, the main call of gospel preaching, the main piercing thrust, if you will, is believe, trust the God of salvation, trust in the person of Jesus. We tend to want from preaching a list, right? We say, okay, what am I supposed to do? I got my pen out. Give me the bullet points so I can get to work, right? Any bullet point applications ought to be subsumed under a point about who God is and what God has done for you already um, and the call to believe, to, to rest in the finished work of Christ, to be who you already are in Christ, um, not to become something. Uh, one writer writes this in observation. He says, according to much preaching today, a person could easily make the judgment that Jesus did not come to give us his life, but to give us principles to live by, simply. Right? It, it's often just seven tips for prayer, or three steps to a better marriage, or how to deal with conflict, or five sentimental points for dads on Father's Day. And all those might be wonderful things to include in a sermon, but 
only if Christ and the gospel are at the center. And it's first about what, what God has done for you in Christ. And another point I want to make is that it's not as if the gospel is simply for unbelievers. And then we go to the church for the rest of our life to get you know, practical advice for good living. The gospel is for all of us, all the time, throughout life. I, I read an article on uh, Nine Marks website. Some of you know that, that uh, ministry by a guy named pa- uh, Ed Moore. He's a pastor. I don't know him outside of this article. Um, <clears throat> not aware of him. But he wrote this article explaining how he, he has been a, a gospel-believing pastor for his whole career. And yet for 21 years, he said he never preached the gospel to the believers of his congregation. Uh, until he had, you know, came to some new conviction. Uh, why was that? Well, he said every, you know, every sermon he ever preached had a little presentation of the gospel to unbelievers and, and an invitation to come to Jesus and give your life to him. And then after that box was checked, he went on to the bulk of the sermon, which was you know, a moralistic message for everyone else, all the believers there. The gospel, Jesus, must be offered and promised to to the saints over and over. The grace of Jesus and the gospel that pierces through our remaining sin and blindness and, um, and, and, and calls us to receive Christ. Uh, we need that to be presented to us throughout our lives. So here Peter's answer again to what shall we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, acknowledge your sin and guilt Uh, Place yourself under the grace and the lordship of Jesus Christ who died for you this morning. Uh, You who have been baptized, as Peter says here, in the name of the Lord. You've been baptized in the name of the Lord. You, You have put on the name of Jesus. You've put on Christ, as Paul says. You've given your life and your hope and your joy and your purpose to him. So give your life and your hope and your joy and your purpose to him today and this week. Live in that. Acknowledge that you're, you're dead without the Holy Spirit, that the God that you were created to be in communion with, as Peter says. He is yours in Christ. So that's, that's the offer of the gospel and a gospel preaching. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this uh, wonderful sermon that Peter preached that you equipped him uh, for. Uh, on that, that great day of Pentecost. Um, Lord, there's much, much more that we could study or learn from this. We, we pray that you might uh, be pleased by your Holy Spirit to bless us in reflecting on what gospel preaching is, what biblical preaching is this morning. Um, we pray that you would uh, keep your church in, around the world faithful uh, to the gospel. Keep us as a congregation faithful uh, to your word uh, and to proclaiming Christ and being scripture-centered and scripture-filled and led by your spirit. Uh, We pray that that would be true in Christ, uh, and we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.